object lesson is this morning in our trick Advent candles. <laughs> Some of you may have noticed they had a rough start getting going. The only thing I can say is that this isn't the most inconvenient time for a candle to not stay lit. Probably the, the most awkward situation I've ever seen was at a wedding ceremony where you may have seen this where the bride and groom do an act of unity lighting the center candle and so let's just say their marriage got off to an inauspicious start while they both held their candles to the center, pulled them away. It glowed for about 30 seconds, flickered, and died. <laughs> now, if you believe in omens, that was a bad one, but I think they're still happily married today, so it's great to be here this morning, and as we finally have three candles lit here, we're reminded that it is the third Advent. We are drawing near to the day of celebration, and as we prepare and as we're getting closer, we want to also prepare our hearts that it's not just about family gatherings, it's not just about, not just about gift exchanges and good food, it's about what Jesus has done in us, in our hearts. And so we want to prepare our hearts a little bit more this morning, and so we want to hear from God's word. So would you bow with me and let's pray together. Heavenly Father, in this time of preparation, we pray now that you would prepare our hearts. Lord, in this Western world in which we live, with all the consumerism, with all of the clutter of Christmas, it's so easy to prepare everything except the most important thing. And so we ask, Lord, that this morning we would set aside those, clutter, those cluttered thoughts, those concerns and cares that so easily crowd out the room that we should be making for you. And so we pray, Lord, that in this moment, in this time, that you would speak to our hearts, that we would prepare for you, and that, Lord, the things that need to be moved out of the way, the things that need to be gotten rid of, we pray that you would do business with us in this time, and that you would make room in our hearts to receive you in a fresh and new way this Christmas. And so we ask, Lord, for your anointing upon this word. Ask, Lord, that you would speak through me. May the words be yours, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. What is the number one most pressing need of the world today? If you had to answer that question this morning and put it down into a single sentence, what would you say is the greatest need of the world today? I'm going to let you think about that for a moment, and we'll come back to it. As we think on this from the world's perspective, we would hear a whole host of different opinions on what the greatest need of the world is today, the single greatest need. Many would say it's to stop terrorism. And as we think of what's happening in the Middle East and in Africa, we think of the threats of terrorism even at home. That is a great concern for many people. And we would say the greatest need of the world today is if we could put an end to terrorism once and for all. Others, with an extension of that, would say if we could put an end to warfare. Just put an end to warfare in all of its forms. Others would say it's to stabilize the global economy. And as we look at the stock markets, we look at the falling price of oil, we see ominous signs around us. We would say if we could just cut deficits and do responsible government spending, we could solve so much of the world's problems. Others would look at the the diseases running rampant. Others would say it's to end poverty, stop the spread of Ebola. 
find a cure for AIDS or cancer. These would be the greatest needs of the world today. Others would say it's to put an end to racism or discrimination in all of its forms. And still others might say that the most pressing need of the world today is to prevent an ecological global disaster by, flight, by fighting climate change. And there are many voices in that, in that corner in our world today. Along that line, just three weeks ago, the main theme of an annual conference hosted by the American Academy of Religion was entitled Fighting Climate Change. Now, I'm not quite sure why the American Academy of Religion thought the main theme for a conference should be fighting climate change, but it was, and so the 9,900 religious scholars and leaders who were in attendance at this conference were presented with such pressing topics as, and I quote, strategic essentialism as a tactical approach to an eco-feminist epistemology. If that didn't quite grab your attention, here was one more of the lectures that they heard. The path has a mind of its own. Eco-agri-pilgrimage to the corn maze performance, an exercise of cross-species sociality. (laughs) Did you catch all that, or do you need me to read that back for you? You got it, okay. Those titles leave me wondering if the lecturers had like a side game of Scrabble going to see you could get the most letters into their titles, but not quite sure how that was going. Now, when Dr. Lori Zorith, the president of the American Academy of Religion, who was the uh, driving organizer behind this conference, when she was asked why she had chosen the topic of fighting climate change as the theme for that year's conference, she responded with this. I decided it was the core moral issue of our time. I decided it was the core moral issue of our time. Really? The core moral issue of our time is fighting climate change. Now, as Christians, of course, we are called to be wise stewards of the earth we've been given, the land around us. We would all agree with that. But when I think of what the core moral issue is of our time, at the risk of sounding overly simplistic, the core moral issue of our time is the same as it's always been. Sin. Is that a little too simple, or am I, am I, am I losing people here? Sin has and always will be the defining and core moral issue of every generation. In fact, every last thing that various people have identified as the number one most pressing needs of the world today can be traced back to mankind's sinfulness. It's why there's terrorism and war. It's why there's disparity between rich and poor. It's why there's hatred and racism. It's why there's disease and death. It's why there's adultery and divorce. It's even why there are violent weather patterns like typhoons, droughts, and earthquakes. You see, Adam and Eve's sin of disobedience to God in the Garden of Eden way back there has carried all of the terrible consequences of this world in its wake. Sin, S-I-N, is that little three-letter word that sums it all up. All of the things which separate us from God and leaves us in a position deserving his judgment and his wrath. I want you to make no mistake about it this morning. Dealing with our sin is still the number one most pressing need of our world today. And by far the most devastating consequences of our sin is that it destroys our relationship with God and it poisons 
our relationships with each other. The nation of Israel. The nation of Israel, one that we're familiar with its example when we look back at the Old Testament. It was in just such a position in the time of the prophet Isaiah. If you want to turn there, we'll be spending a little bit of time thinking along with Isaiah as he speaks on God's behalf to the nation. In Isaiah chapter 59 and verses 1 and 2, speaking through Isaiah, God says to the nation of Israel, Surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, nor is his ear too dull to hear, but your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he will not hear. You see, God is always ready and willing and able to save, but our sins become a barrier between us and a perfect and holy God. You know, this has often been a concept that I've struggled with understanding properly, and I want to help you understand this picture, the separation between us sinful people and a holy God in very practical terms. I want you to picture a a beautiful bride on her wedding day, and she's all dressed up in her perfectly white wedding gown. Everything is prepared, every detail is taken care of, and she is now approaching the marriage altar. Now, remember, she is prepared in every possible way. Not a hair on her head is out of place, and she is just glowing with this radiant expectation of this moment she's been dreaming about since she was a little girl. Just picture this moment, and many of you have been that bride coming to the altar, and many more of you have been the the man ready to receive that bride. I want you to have that picture in your mind, but now I want you to also picture the groom approaching that same altar. But instead of being immaculate and prepared, I want you to picture the groom approaching the altar dressed in filthy rags, and he is covered in head-to-toe with raw sewage. All right? I want you to conjure up the worst smell you can imagine right now. This is what is emanating off of him. He is covered in head-to-toe with raw sewage. He smells so bad that when people come by, their eyes are watering and they're gagging and they're retching. It is, it is absolutely toxic as he walks by. In fact, it's so thick that you can, you can barely see his eyes and it's dripping off of him as he walks. Now, just, just picture this. Complete contrast between this perfectly immaculate and prepared bride and this filthy, dripping groom. Now, at this moment, aside from the fact that the church janitor is probably having a heart attack, (laughs) aside from that, how do you think his bride would react to his appearance? Do you think that she would be going ahead with the ceremony with him in that condition? I think it's safe to say she would not be reacting very well to his presentation, now would he? I also think it's safe to say that the ceremony would not be going ahead at least for the time being, until he is cleaned up. Why? It's not that she's unwilling to marry him. Remember, she's already at the altar. It's not that she doesn't love him. But it's hard to imagine that wedding ceremony moving ahead. Why? Because his ragged and filthy condition has put a barrier between himself and his spotlessly clean and prepared bride. This is a picture of the way our sin puts a barrier between us and a perfect and holy God. It's not that God doesn't love us. It's not that God doesn't want to be with us. 
But until we are cleansed from our sin, from that stinking raw filth, that sewage of sin that permeates our lives, until we're cleaned from it, God cannot be with us and we cannot be with him. I want to be clear here that though this is a truth that is primarily speaking to those who have not yet put faith in Jesus Christ to receive his cleansing, this truth also carries over to those who already have. Because though the Christian has been saved by God's grace from their sin when they place their faith in Jesus Christ, every sin that they commit after that moment still places a barrier between them and God. Not a barrier to salvation, but a barrier to relationship. And when there is a barrier in a relationship, what is one of the first things that's affected? Communication. Anytime there is a rift in a relationship, when something comes in between, the very first thing that suffers is communication. And so when we sin, it hinders our communication with God. It hinders our prayers. There is a blockage between us and our Heavenly Father. And until it is dealt with, our communication will suffer. In fact, the passage we just read earlier in Isaiah makes it clear that Israel's sin had actually stopped God's ability from hearing Israel's prayers. And so, when we think about that, we realize that we need to have this dealt with. And we think about how communication needs to be restored in order for reconciliation to take place. I want you to think about this in human terms, practical terms that we've probably all experienced at one time or another. How is your communication with your husband or your wife, your spouse, moments after you've just had a big argument? How is your communication doing? What do you do in those moments if you've just had a big argument? How about right after you and your parents have just had a big argument over something, you've just had a big fight about your curfew or something, how's your communication doing in the direct aftermath of that? How about with a friend after you just found out that they gossiped about you behind your back? How is your communication with that friend? Chances are in all of those scenarios, communication is going to suffer. And the relationship will continue to suffer until the barrier is dealt with and removed. And so it is with us and God. Until our sin is dealt with and removed, our relationship with him cannot move forward. Trying to communicate with God about anything else other than our sin is futile. Because God will not hear anything else we have to say until we deal with our sin first. The only prayer God will hear in those moments is the prayer of of confession and repentance. Until our sin is dealt with, we cannot move ahead in the relationship. And now once we realize this truth, what is our typical reaction? Well, we want to clean ourselves up, right? We want to restore relationship. And so what we try to do is we try to scrub our lives clean. The only problem is when we try to scrub ourselves clean, no matter how hard we try, we will never be able to get rid of every last speck of sin. In Isaiah chapter 64 and verse 6, The prophet cries out to God on behalf of the nation. And he says, All of us have become like one who is unclean. And all of our righteousness is like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf. And like the wind, our sins sweep us away. You see, even in our best human effort, all we can ever do is show up to the altar in stinking, filthy rags. 
No matter how hard we try to dress it up, it will always be the same result. And so once we recognize that, what is our next instinct? Well, we try to cover up our sin. We try to mask it. We try to get out the axe and we try to hose ourselves down so we don't stink so bad, right? There's a story of a man who purchased a white mouse to use as food for his pet snake. Are there any snake lovers here this morning? No one. Are there any snake haters here this morning? (laughs) Okay, we got a few. Well, this guy was a, a snake lover. Obviously not a mouse lover because he was feeding this white mouse to the snake. And so dropping this unsuspecting mouse into the snake's glass cage, the snake is sleeping in the corner in a bed of sawdust. And so the man watched this tiny mouse land in the cage and suddenly realized that he had a serious problem on his hands. At any moment, he could be swallowed alive. And obviously, this mouse needed to come up with a brilliant plan. So what did the terrified creature do? He quickly set up work covering the snake with sawdust chips. He went up beside it and started digging with his paws until the snake was completely covered. And with that, the mouse apparently thought he had solved his problem and carried on as though everything were fine. Well, the man continued to watch, and a few minutes later, the snake's head darted out, swallowing the mouse in one giant bite. Just like that mouse, we cover up our sin, and we think it's dealt with, and we carry on with life as usual. But sin covered up, left undealt with, in the end, will always come back to bite us. Even if we think we've gotten away with it in this life, we will still have to answer to God. Any sin that we cover up and carry on life as usual, thinking it's been dealt with, if it has not been brought to God's throne of grace, will always come back to bite us. And try as we might, left to our own devices, mankind as a whole, and we as individuals, we have no solution to deal with our greatest need, the sin that separates us from a holy God. So what is the solution? What is the answer to mankind's greatest need. By now I'm certain that everyone has heard about the racially motivated riots that have been taking place in Ferguson, Missouri. It was triggered back in August, I believe, by the shooting death of a young black man named Michael Brown by a white police officer named Darren Wilson. Now the incidents in question have provoked countless, countless people to weigh in on what the solution to the problem of racism is. But amongst the clamor, one man's voice has risen above the rest. He's not a politician or a pastor. He's actually an NFL football player for the New Orleans Saints. His name's Benjamin Watson, and he himself is an African-American, and he shared his thoughts in a Facebook post. That post went viral, and it has since been shared hundreds of thousands of times going around the world, reaching millions of people, and I'm sure that some of you here have read that post. So what did he say that so captured people's attention? I want you to listen to how Watson concluded his message. This is what he wrote. He wrote, I'm encouraged, because ultimately the problem is not a skin problem, it is a sin problem. Sin is the reason we rebel against authority. Sin is the reason we abuse our authority. Sin is the reason we are racist, prejudiced, and lie to cover for our own. 
Sin is the reason we riot, loot, and burn. But I'm encouraged because God has provided a solution for sin through his son Jesus, and with it, a transformed heart and mind, one that's capable of looking past the outward and seeing what's truly important in every human being. The cure for the Michael Brown, Trevon Martin, Tamir Rice, and Eric Garner tragedies is not education or exposure, it's the gospel. So finally, I'm encouraged, because the gospel gives mankind hope. My friends, whatever problem the world faces today, whether it's racism, whether it's prejudice, whether it's disparity between rich and poor, whether it's war or terrorism, the answer is not more education, not to be more civil towards one another. The answer is the gospel of Jesus Christ. In him, we have hope. There is no other place to find it. The gospel of Jesus Christ, he is the solution to our greatest need. Where sin brings brokenness, and it brings despair, and it brings division between relationships, the gospel brings healing and hope and reconciliation. I want you to turn with me to Romans chapter 5. And there we want to read together verses 6 to 11. The verses speak for themselves, but I want you to hear these verses as a message to you. Because they really are. They're a message to you and to me. This is the heart of the gospel. Beginning in verse 6, the Apostle Paul, writing to the church in Rome, says this. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person. Though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is the heart of the gospel. This is for you and this is for me. That while we were in our sin, mired in those filthy rags, covered in it from head to toe, in that condition, God looked at us, he loved us, and he said, I'm going to clean you up. I am going to redeem you. I am going to restore you. Verse 9, he says how he did that. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if, we will, if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. This is what it's all about, reconciling ourselves to God and out of that relationship being able to be reconciled to our fellow man and one another. And now I know some of you by now might be wondering, this is the third Advent. Where's the Christmas theme in this message? Well, I want to tell you that it's right here because this is what Christmas is really all about. God reconciling sinners to himself through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He did so by at just the right time, in just the right way, sending his son Jesus into this world, clothed not in power, but in humility. You see, Jesus laid aside his robes of glory so that we could lay aside our filthy rags of sin. Jesus clothed himself in humility so that we could be clothed in righteousness. In Isaiah 61 and verse 10, singing a song of praise 
on behalf of all those who had yet repent of their sin and received God's salvation, the prophet Isaiah declares, I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has arrayed me in the robe of his righteousness, as a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest, and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. What a picture, my friends, of having our filthy rags removed, and we are clothed now with the righteous robes of Jesus Christ himself. He has made this possible. He has done this. All we have to do is receive it. We receive this by repenting of our sins. We repent of them, we confess them, we turn away from them, and we put on Jesus' robe of righteousness and enter into a relationship with the Father. There is no other way. There is no other path. The only way is through Jesus. We cannot save ourselves. Only he can save us. Only he can reconcile us to our Heavenly Father. And so let me ask you today, have you been reconciled to God? Have you been reconciled to your fellow man? This is truly what Christmas is all about. God bringing reconciliation. If we miss this, we miss the message of Christmas. If we go in and try to celebrate Christmas without being reconciled to God and without being reconciled to one another, we've missed the whole point of the gift. Jesus came to bring reconciliation. Jesus came so that we could be free from sin and alive unto God and to each other. This is how it all has to happen. It has to happen through humility. It has to happen through confession, through repentance, and forgiveness. And we all have a part to play in this. Whether we are the one to confess and repent, whether we are the one to forgive and extend grace, God says, do as I have done for you. And so we all have a part to play. So I want you to listen very, very carefully. Because if you know that right now you need to be reconciled to God, if there's something in your relationship that's come in between, if there is sin that you need to deal with, listen carefully. I want to tell you exactly what we have to do. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9 says this. If we confess our sins, that means verbalizing them. That means speaking them out loud specifically. Lord, here is my sin. I am confessing it. Then it goes on to say that God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, most of us are pretty good at doing this first one. I know I am. I'm pretty good at the language of confession when it comes to my prayers to God. But it's the second part that's really hard to bring about complete reconciliation because it's not just between us and God now. It's between us and one another. So the second part is the same as the first. We also need to confess, but this time it changes who we are confessing to. James chapter 5, verse 16. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. My friends, we first must confess to God, but then second, we have to confess to each other. And now I know firsthand how deeply our proud hearts stand opposed to this sort of confession. 
everything within us says, I will confess to God and that is enough. I will not confess to another man. But if we have sinned against our fellow man, we must confess because it's only through the pathway of genuine confession that we can be freed from sin and reconciled not only to God, but also to one another. And we must swallow our pride. We must be humble. We must confess. We must repent. And we must forgive. Dr. F. E. Marsh told of one occasion where he was preaching on this exact topic and he was urging upon his ear, upon his hearers the importance of confession of sin wherever possible and wherever possible to make right any wrong done and to make restitution. And at the close of his sermon, a young man came up to him immediately after the sermon and his face was troubled. And pastor, he, he ex- just exclaimed, he blurted it out, you have put me in a sad state. I have wronged another man and I am ashamed to confess it. I am ashamed to try to put it right. And I don't know how I can possibly do it. You see, I am a boat builder and the man I work for is not a believer. And I have talked to him often about his need of Christ and I have urged him to come and hear you preach. But he scoffs and he ridicules me and he ridicules the faith. And now I've been guilty of something that if I should acknowledge it to him will ruin my testimony forever and he will never come to a saving knowledge of the Lord. He then went on to explain how some time ago he had started to build a boat for himself in his own yard. And in this work, copper nails are used because they don't rust in the water. And these nails are quite expensive and the young man had been taking large quantities of these copper nails from work and smuggling them home to use on his own boat. He knew it was stealing, but he had tried to ease his conscience by telling himself that his master had so many he would never miss them, and besides, he justified that his boss wasn't paying him enough to begin with. But this sermon had brought him face to face with the fact that he was just a common thief, for whose dishonest actions there was no excuse, and he knew he needed to make it right. But he said, I cannot go to my boss and tell him what I've done. I cannot offer to pay for those and return the rest. If I do, he'll just think I'm a hypocrite. And yet those copper nails are digging into my conscience, and I know I shall never have peace until I put this matter right. And he went for weeks to struggle with this. And day after day, night after night, it ate at his mind and his conscience. And finally one night, he came to Dr. Marsh, and he exclaimed, Pastor, I've settled for the copper nails I've confessed my sin and my conscience is free at last. What happened when you confessed to your employer what he had done? How did he respond? asked the pastor. Oh, the man replied, he looked at me funny and then he exclaimed, George, I always did think you were just a hypocrite. But now I feel that there's something in this Christianity after all. For any religion that would make a dishonest workman like you come back and confess that he had been stealing copper nails and offer to settle for them, that's a religion that must be worth having. What are the copper nails in your life today? What are the copper nails that the Holy Spirit even now is revealing to your heart and mind? May we each allow the Holy Spirit to do his work. It is his work, after all. Let's allow him to do it. Let's give him a free hand to speak to our hearts and our minds. And may we do what is right and pleasing in the Lord's sight even today. May God bless you in your relationships this Christmas. May God bless you in your families. 
May God bless you as you relate to others in your workplace and as you work and relate to others within this church family. Because we know that reconciliation, God's plan to him and to each other, is the way that this has always been intended to work. This is what Christmas is all about. May we follow in God's plan. May we not just go through the motions this Christmas, but may we truly be reconciled to God and to one another according to God's will. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this amazing, wonderful, beautiful plan. We thank you for its simplicity. We thank you that you have made it so easy to understand that even a child gets it. That we can't save ourselves, we can't fix ourselves. Only you can. And we've got to humble ourselves to come to you and say, I'm sorry, Lord. I confess my sin. I confess my need for your help. I can't do it myself. Would you cleanse me? Would you forgive me? And that, Lord, in the same way as you restore us to yourself, as you forgive us and say, my child, I've been waiting for you. Come to me. I will not judge you. I will not be harsh with you. Let me love you. Let me forgive you. Let me clean you up. Let me take off those filthy robes and let me give you the robes of righteousness which I've made possible through my son. Oh God, it's so beautiful it takes our breath away that you would do that for people like us. That you would do it for someone like me. And we give you praise and thanks today, Lord. And so now, Father, in this beautiful gift that you've given us, You have asked us to do the same with one another. Help us to do so, Lord. Give us the grace we need today to follow the plan that you have given us, knowing that when we do so, your Holy Spirit is at work, that you will add the power to whatever words we say, Lord, that you would bring about restoration, that you would bring about healing, Oh, Father, that this Christmas would not be a time of brokenness, Lord, but that it would be a time of togetherness. And that, Lord, we would come together as your people. We would come together as families. Oh, Lord, we would come together in thanking you for this great plan of salvation, that you have come to bring peace on earth and goodwill among men. We love you, Lord Jesus. Thank you. Go with us now, we pray in Jesus' name.